0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer and biographer Andrew Lycett, who as well as having written a notable biography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he's followed it up with a new book, a beautifully illustrated consideration of Doyle and his wider world called The Worlds of Sherlock Holmes, the inspirations behind the world's greatest detective. Andrew, welcome. Hello there yeah I wanted to look at
1: the worlds of Sherlock Holmes because I felt that he existed in a particular environment um you know it's well known that he made his mark in the 1890s but I particularly wanted to draw attention to the fact that he didn't exist in a vacuum that he was really the product contrary to what some Sherlockians like to have it. Uh, It wasn't just the concoction, the creation of his biographer, Dr. Watson, but there was this man uh, who was absolutely instrumental to them both appearing, which was the the man described as um, the literary agent of Dr. Watson, and that is Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a fascinating character in his own right. And I wanted to show any, you know, how Conan Doyle's life had been reflected in Sherlock Holmes. And then I wanted to talk as indeed about the the worlds of Sherlock Holmes. And I wanted to look at the different aspects that are reflected in, in his stories and by extension how much they also reflect Conan Doyle's. So I wanted to look at Sherlock Holmes's sense of place. I wanted to look at his sense of the world and you know politics and the, the, the sort of wider world. I wanted to look at his intellectual background and particularly drawing there on Conan Doyle's own experience as a student in Edinburgh. And I wanted to look at other aspects of the worlds uh, or in the plural there that uh, Sherlock Holmes reflected and you know another one would be, sort of drawing out from the, the scientific, the, the intellectual input and the scientific input, we've got um, the sort of aspects of detection that were coming into play, uh, detective stories,
0: et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm interested though. you've you described Conan Doyle as his as a sort of literary agent or executor or whatever it is that Sherlockians call him, which tips onto, uh, you know, as a parenthesis at least, something quite interesting and strange, it seems, about the afterlife of Sherlock Holmes, which is that his most fervent enthusiasts seem to play a sort of literary game of presenting him not as a a sort of literary creation, as an invention of Arthur Conan Doyle, but as a real person about whom they investigate very straight-faced, as if it was history. Why do you think that is? Do you think that kind of hobbles or helps the afterlife of the character and of the literary work of Conan Doyle? I think it is a I sort of used to stand
1: aloof from that, I have to admit, because, you know, I couldn't quite get the hang of it, to be honest. I was the biographer of Conan Doyle, and as far as I was concerned, Conan Doyle was responsible for Sherlock Holmes, et cetera, et cetera. But there were, um, there are masses of people. They assemble in societies. Sometimes they call themselves Sion, Skyon society, I don't know how to pronounce that word. The greatest of them, the, the best known, is the, the Baker Street Irregulars in the United States, where there's a lot of enthusiasm for show at homes. But there's a, there's a very good one in London, the Show at Home Society of London.
0: So, just reminding what, what exactly was your question again? Well, it was why has the fandom taken this, or I think almost uniquely among literary fandoms, this particular kind of whimsical shape? And how that sort of distorts, if you like, Conan Doyle's literary legacy and the seriousness with which he's taken. I mean, it makes a bit of a parlour game of him, doesn't it?
1: It does indeed. Um, Well, one has to blame an Oxford don, Ronald Knox, for that, because back in, I think it uh, it was just before the First World War anyway, he was a student at Balliol, and he went to a meeting of a society in Merton College, Oxford, where they... Or he wanted to make a sort of textual criticism of the Sherlock Holmes stories according to the sort of biblical, Germanic criticism that actually was then out of fashion, but you know had been the, the rage back in the, the 19th century. And you know you look very carefully at the characters and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And Ronald Knox, later, a Monsignor in his own right, sort of took this and presented a paper looking at aspects of the stories and treating them as real, treating them as real incidents and treating both uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as real people. And this attracted people, people people like this. And, uh, you know, particularly starting after Conan Doyle's death, I think it's true to say, in the United States, there was a great um, sort of enthusiasm for, the game, as they call it, the game of looking at Sherlock Holmes' stories and looking very carefully at all the incidents that are portrayed in them and finding ways at which they kind of correspond, looking at the protagonist, looking at the ways that Dr. Watson deals with Sherlock Holmes's dealings with uh, justice, for example, you know, how Sherlock Holmes kind of takes the law into his own hands at at various times. And uh, so this game continued to be played around the world and, you know, the the societies grew and it has only become sort of slightly changed in the last dozen years, I'd say, that more credit has been given to Conan Doyle. Now, um, (laughs) I'm not ascribing too much responsibility to myself. And, you know, I wrote a biography of Conan Doyle. I think that people won't probably want to hear me say this, but I think people, those great sort of Sherlockians, have got a bit sort of tired of the minutiae of the game that they play. And they want to expand it a bit. They want to see... Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Sherlock Holmes in particular, in the wider world. And this is exactly what I'm trying to address in in my new book, um, The
0: Worlds of Sherlock Holmes. So now that the emphasis has at least in part returned onto Arthur Conan Doyle as more than just a sort of random amanuensis or executor, can you talk a little about the relationship between Conan Doyle and his creation because I, just as on the morning that we're speaking, there's a news story, didn't seem all that newsy to me in the Telegraph, based on Lucy Worsley's new programme, saying, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle got fed up with Sherlock Holmes. Yes, well, on a very basic level, that's obvious.
1: And actually, to be honest, it has been obvious for quite some time. Conan Doyle killed off his creation, Sherlock Holmes, famously at the Reichenbach Falls. In 1893, it was, um, you know, the stories were being published regularly in the Strand magazine and Conan Doyle was getting progressively more sort of bored with them, basically. And uh, he thought that he had a higher calling. He was an ambitious man and he felt that, you know, his great hero, uh, literary hero, was Robert Louis Stevenson. And he saw himself as a, a writer of romances along the lines of Robert Lewis Stevenson. He wanted to write historical novels in particular. And he had done so. I mean, his novel about the, the White Company had come out more or less at the same time as Sherlock Holmes emerged. And um, Sherlock Holmes sort of preyed on Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was trivial stuff as far as he was concerned. But it it then became the kind of burden that he had to carry because everybody loved Sherlock Holmes and he tried to kill him off at the the Reichenbach Falls. There's a kind of uncertainty about how much he left the door open. You know, was Sherlock Holmes really kind of, you know, can we really say that he from the the, the original story, can we say that he was sort of pushed off the edge of the the mountain, the the cliff. but he emerges, what is it, some eight years later. and so we get the return of
0: of Sherlock Holmes. This was in response to a big check from the states, wasn't it? At least you seem to say in this? That indeed was. yes. It wasn't as though Conan Doyle
1: lacked for money. He was had got quite wealthy by that time. But yes, indeed, there was this great demand for Sherlock Holmes, you know, famously again, as a result of the the death of Sherlock Holmes, there was sort of um, mourning in the offices of London in the, in the city because Sherlock Holmes had been particularly attractive to the sort of newly educated classes who had been they'd gone to the the elementary schools introduced in the sort of reforms of the eighteen seventies and. They were coming up to London in the trains and they were buying the Strand magazine. The Strand magazine was a clever concoction by George Nunes, the publisher, who'd been responsible for a much sort of lower level periodical titbits, uh, which sort of, as its name implies, it sort of put together sort of little titbits from the various newspapers, a bit like the sort of internet of its day. Strand Magazine was trying to be something a little bit more. It was to appeal to the family, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where Conan Doyle and,
0: indeed, George Nunes found their market. And um, I mean, You mentioned the Strand Magazine. I think one of the really interesting things in this book is you're talking about how it was not just the exciting, attractive qualities of Sherlock Holmes as a you know, figure and as a set of narratives. But the medium helped to make him the success he was. That you know, he'd published a couple of short novels and they'd done okay, but they hadn't set the heather alight. And it was that serial publication, and of course Sidney Padgett's illustrations that created the phenomenon. Indeed. Yes, I think you know, it was clearly this is something
1: I think probably emphasizes too much, but this was Sherlock Holmes being part of his age and, and Conan Doyle. I mean, they were responding to the the new technological, if you like, kind of opportunities that were available as a result of advances in printing techniques, et cetera, et cetera. So that was something that was significant. And then you you talk about the the pictures. Now obviously the Sydney Paget drawings, line drawings, were very important in creating an image of Sherlock Holmes. And then that was taken up by another phenomenon of the age. Now, one of the funny, slightly strange things about the the Sherlock Holmes story is that Conan Doyle initially turned his back on films. He, um, I think he, you know, he was a man of print, if you like. It's, it was odd. I, I haven't really put my. Don't quite understand that because you know he was a great advocate of technical advance himself. You know, he loved motor cars and et cetera, et cetera. But Sherlock Holmes didn't appear on film for a while. And his man, the, the mantle of Paget was taken up by the theatre. And again, particularly in the United States, by there was an actor called William Gillette who toured Sherlock Holmes sort of, well, obviously in New York, but around the United States and then brought him to Britain. And he... Absolutely, sort of created the image of Sherlock Holmes with the Mersham pipe and the, the cap and the ulster. Now, a bit of that you get in, in the, the Paget drawings, but I think it was Gillette who, who really kind of nailed that. And then the first films were actually, strangely, again, you know, there's no obvious reason for this that I know of. First films were in Germany and Denmark, first Sherlock Holmes films. But gradually, you begin to get the films coming online. Gillette himself appeared in a version of his play, Sherlock Holmes, during the the, war, the first World War, in fact. And then you get Conan Doyle sort of endorsing the films, particularly the stole version of films, uh, of the films made in Britain. And actually, one of the interesting things, <laughs> amusing things, if you like, about the early films is that they are kind of anachronistic, if that's the right word in this context, because one of the great things about Sherlock Holmes is that he is about sort of living in the the 1890s. Uh, there's a, a, a song that great Sherlockians like to sing at their gatherings about the, the world where it's always like 1895. But in the, the early Sherlock films, you get sort of motor cars and you get, and it wasn't actually until... Later, I think that the first film that Sherlock Holmes appears in the time that he was written about, i.e., you know, the 1890s, is The Hind of the Baskervilles, which was the the late 1930s with um, Basil Rathbone. So it's a curious thing there.
0: Well, you have him at one point, which is amazing to me, there there were a set of films in the war that had him hunting for Nazis and so forth. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they
1: crop up on. Television quite a lot these days, and I mean, I personally don't give much uh, credit to them. But this was Sherlock Holmes being appropriated as somebody who could do something for his country. I mean, I was the biographer of Conan Doyle, and I was also the biographer of Ian Fleming in another incarnation. And I like to think of the the parallels between James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. Now. They are very different, and Sherlock um, Holmes is the consulting detective. James Bond is the the blunt instrument of the state who goes out and sort of kills people and does the nation's dirty business. But I suppose actually the point I'm trying to make there is that it is the image that has been very instrumental in bringing both those characters, Sherlock Holmes, and James Bond, to the wider world. Now, it's obvious, you know, that about James Bond, you know, you've got the the great bunch of films, um, Sean Connery, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the same with Sherlock Holmes that, as I explained, you know, he was initially brought to the public, um, the image in, in the Strand magazine, then on stage, then in the
0: films. So there are interesting parallels. That parallel that you mentioned is a very interesting one because they both behave, don't they, really quite quickly after their first publication, as something more like myths than like fictional characters. You know, the characters become infinitely available to retelling in different environments, different eras, different, you know. Yes, I think that's true. Um on one level, that is, <laughs> I suppose it goes
1: absolutely from what you say, that it's something in the stories that make them like that. It's something in the, the way that Sherlock Holmes, that Conan Doyle, if you like, you know, if you want to go back a bit, Dr. Watson tells Sherlock Holmes' exploits, that makes them very available to everybody. There's something in the the sort of characterization of Holmes and Watson. There's something also very much in the sort of dialogue that they have. It's very transferable there's something that funny enough um i mentioned in my introduction that uh, another spy writer john le carre talked about about how there was something in the stories that makes them kind of translatable a and b um accessible to to everybody now obviously the the characters are central to this and you know there's a lot that could be said about the buddy relationship between sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, and, you know, how this created a template for all sorts of detective fiction over succeeding years.
0: The relationship between Holmes and his creator also, I interested in how much your view on it is that Conan Doyle put into Holmes things that were sort of almost antithetical to him, I mean, I'm thinking the really central one, which seems a really curious contrast, is that Holmes is... You know, as, as I think he's described in the books as a desiccated calculating machine, you know, he's an absolute creature of reason. There's nothing numinous enters his world or his own kind of consciousness. And yet, Conan Doyle, obviously, famously was the guy taken in by the Cossingley fairies who believed in spiritualism. Who? How do you account for that extraordinary gulf between them?
1: Yeah, I mean, let me just say a bit about conan doyle himself and i may sort of help explain it um he did create this character who was the the sort of the calculating machine etc cetera, etc cetera. and he drew on his own experience as a student in edinburgh he'd studied medicine so he he created a sort of holmes character who adopted some of the the traits of his Great tutor in Edinburgh, where there's sort of the tradition of the empirical and the observing in the medical school there. Uh, That was a chap called Dr. Joseph Bell, who claimed that he could look at any patient and put him in in position. And famously, he told how somebody who came to his surgery uh, had been a soldier and he'd served in a Highland regiment because he put his hat down in a certain way and he had probably served in the West Indies. Now, there is a lot of kind of rather strange things, in my estimation, that allow him to do that. Uh, You know, why he comes up with the the West Indies, I've never been quite able to understand because Highland Regiments sort of serve in other parts of the world as as well. But anyway, the point really is that uh, Conan Doyle adopted some of the methodology of his tutor, Dr. Joseph Bell, and he gave them to Sherlock Holmes. But um, then we revert back to Conan Doyle himself. Now, he was a complex character. He was born in, in Edinburgh, but his family were Irish, and he was of Roman Catholic background, educated at Stonyhurst. And while he was sort of incredibly interested in aspects of, positivism science all those kind of things uh he could never quite leave behind this sort of sense that there was something deeper involved in human experience and that stayed with him he when he was a doctor in south sea in portsmouth for a while he sort of was trying desperately to sort of be respectable and, and not to show any great you know odd traits so you know he tried very hard to be a sort of paid-up scientific doctor, but that aspect of his his interest in all sorts of the paranormal had uh, just stayed with him throughout. I mean, it actually you find it in all sorts of stories. Um, I'll get onto the the Sherlockian aspects of it, but in his early days in Portsmouth, before he even wrote about Sherlock Holmes, he was writing stories for odd. Magazines in Edinburgh, in London, and they were about sort of paranormal mesmerism, that sort of thing. He was fascinated. He started doing seances in Portsmouth, and then he tried to suppress it. He tried to be this paid-up scientist, and he channeled that inclination into Sherlock Holmes. At least that's my um, theory at the moment. And then he he kind of re-adopted that and. There were various reasons for that. He had maintained that interest. And then the First World War came along and his uh, members of his family and that of his second wife, Jean, were killed. And, you know, there was a great sort of interest in spiritualism, which is, you know, a sort of religion. People wanted to get in touch with their, their dead loved ones that they hadn't been able to, to say goodbye to. And Conan Doyle was able to to sort of adopt that. I mean, it, it sort of was exactly what, what he thought, and he, he did that. And then you get him becoming the great apostle of spiritualism and losing his... I mean, he was a, a very respected figure, and it's sort of sad to say that, you know, he lost his authority in his last 15 years of his life. He died in 1930. But interestingly... Then you get, in those last 15 years, you get him traveling to the United States and sort of addressing vast spiritualist meetings and stuff like that and adopting spirit photography. And that was why he alighted on these two girls in Yorkshire who presented the, the faked pictures of the Cottingley Fairies that he took as gospel and made a bit of a fool of himself. But he then, having sort of written about Sherlock Holmes very much the sort of rational consulting detective in the first two stroke three series of his books there were the adventures of uh, Sherlock Holmes came out in 1892 that's the book version based on the sh- on the on the Strand stories then there was a the memoirs and the return of Sherlock Holmes then there was a sort of bit of intermediary thing called the last his last bar, and then there was the case book of Sherlock Holmes, and that includes some interesting dabbles with um, aspects of the spiritualist world that he was interested in in real life. And there are stories such as the adventure of the Sussex Vampire, you know, which is very much a sort of gothic story. Um, it's not traditional Sherlock Holmes the the rational detective this is about sort of vampires in, in etc and uh, women taking bites of of people's throats and that sort of thing this is very much a throwback to his earlier stuff so it's interesting that sherlock holmes and you know his creator in my book conan doyle were you know reflecting well conan doyle in particular was reflecting his interest in aspects of the paranormal in those later stories, which uh, tend to be disparaged because they're not quite as good as the earlier stories. And I mean, there's not not much doubt about that, but they are interesting stories because they do show a slightly different kind of detective from the one that you see when we meet Sherlock Holmes. He's in his laboratory in Bart's Hospital and he's, he's pouring over his chemistry uh, experiments. And, you know, this is the kind of Sherlock Holmes that certainly is presented in the early Sherlock
0: Holmes stories. Well, how much did Sherlock Holmes benefit from and or, you know, help to bring about the rise of the popular idea of the detective? Because, as you describe in this new book, the idea of detectives as a separate branch of the police was kind of rising about the time the home stories were coming out and various advances in what we now call forensic science were starting to kind of edge in, weren't they? That's correct, yeah.
1: You know, it is it is a story that I explored in this particular book how detectives were beginning to appear in literature. You know, they appeared in, in Dickens and Inspector Bucket. You know, he was based on Dickens' own observations of detectives in the the early metropolitan police. And uh, the genre of, of detective stories was um, beginning to be developed by people like um, Edgar Allan Poe in the Tales of the Rue Morgue. And they were trying to, I mean, particularly Poe, was trying to present the detective as Poe calls his detective stories tales of ratiocination," ratiocination, you yeah. know, Pronounce that right, and um, they're about a detective sort of piecing together the clues. Now, th- these were themes that were beginning to, to come out in the 19th century, and I suppose one of the things that I'm trying to show in my wider picture of the worlds of Sherlock Holmes is how this interest in detection pieced together the clues you know, you get in Wilkie Collins as well, the Moonstone. How this reflected the wider interest in observing things in the culture. You get that obviously in science. You know, that's about looking at details, and you know. So Conan Doyle was actually born in the same year as the publication of The Origin of Species. And that sort of scientific background, if you like, and Again, his sort of rather quirky reaction to it plays through the stories. Now you were asking about detective stories. At the same time, you get again the worlds of Sherlock Holmes, you get the advance of technology, people quantifying things. You're they're looking, they're coming up with the first mugshots of criminals and looking at various traits and trying to predict criminal behavior and things like that. And then of course you get fingerprints and footprints, and Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes reflects these in his stories. In a way, perhaps not as much as you might think, but um, he does. You get stories where the footprints in the snow are significant, and so Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes was using this sort of modern stuff in his stories. And, of course, I mean, get back to Conan Doyle himself, he studied medicine. He particularly taken an interest in chemistry and in alkaloids. And he would sort of take doses of plants, which, which could have medicinal
0: effects and particularly alkaloids. Well, I was going to say on that subject, Conan Doyle, for someone who's an expert in alkaloids, seems to think that cocaine makes you drowsy. Why do we think that is? Yes, I mean yes. Conan
1: Doyle's Sherlock um, Holmes's uh, attitude to his drug of recreation. Yes, he may have felt that, and I, you know, I can't really say too much about that, except that the, it's interesting the the way that he seeks sort of solitariness when he's not out working. You know, work uh, being a detective is the, his great. Call in life, and that's where he puts all his energy. And so, when he goes back to Baker Street and to his his room, he's a bit of a recluse, and he secretes himself. And you know, he's got his companion, Doctor Watson, of course. But Conan Doyle, Sherlock uh, Holmes, is uh, lifestyle like, if you like, is sort of scraping away at his violin, taking a seven percent solution of
0: cocaine that it's his sort of equivalent of working. To take a point that you touched on a second ago, which I'd be interested in, talk about the literary afterlife of detectives and the detective story. Holmes is obviously very important in that. And you mentioned that, you know, Ronald Knox was the... He was a pivotal figure in the golden age of crime that came afterwards. You know, was a great Holmesian I'm wondering if there was a sort of disjunction by the time we got to the Golden Age, because Knox's famous Ten Commandments, his Decalogue, insists that you always know, as a reader, you, you have all the clues available to you. and that, That's not really how Holmes works, is it? Isn't it with Holmes, he'll present an extraordinary deduction, but those deductions aren't possible for the reader to make reading the book?
1: I suppose that is correct, but... um Yes, this was the formula that Ronald Knox created for the detective story in the in the golden Age, and you know that's an interesting point that you make actually, the extent to which the home stories the evidence is there in advance. um I suppose actually, what is happening in a home story is that we are putting a lot of confidence and faith in the consulting detective in going to the scene of the crime, if it is indeed a crime, and making those connections himself, and they are not presented to the reader in quite the way that they might be in, for example, an Agatha Christie story. But I don't think it is quite the disjunction that you Suggest. I mean, I think that there's there's a closer affinities between the two, and I, I suppose in one way, the detective story has not been developed in quite the way that it was later. And you know, clues, although they they came into common parlance in the mid 19th century, the sort of tradition of a locked room mystery, etc. It, it's it's in its infancy in Sherlock Holmes. In stories like The Speckled Band, for example. So, Sherlock Holmes, in this respect, is
0: a step along the route to the detective stories of the Golden Age, indeed. I was fascinated by the chapter where you talk about the afterlife of Holmes and the way that it's been kept alive in a lot of ways by television and film adaptations. I mean, among them, I hadn't known or hadn't noticed that House, that wonderful, thing About a doctor with Hugh Laurie is a home story. The question of the home's estate and copyright has been a really tangled and complicated one, hasn't it? Can you talk a bit about where we are with that now? It certainly has. I mean, Conan Doyle died in
1: 1930, and then the sort of estate was assumed, first of all, by well, the management of the estate was taken over by his son's. Uh, Adrian and Dennis, and they were very sort of protective of it. But I suppose the important point really is that the Sherlock Holmes stories remained in copyright until, I think I'm right in saying, uh, the beginning of last year. And there were all sorts of complex reasons for this, that you could extend the copyright of certain stories in the United States when it was no longer in copyright in the wider world, and this enabled the Conan Doyle estate to sort of take exception to various attempts at writing new kind of Holmes material, because they tried to claim that the elements in some of these sort of pastiche Holmes novels, etc., they were only available in the later stories that were still under copyright. Well, that went out. the at the window um, a year or so ago and so now everything is in copyright and people are writing stories and one of the the things that uh i do write about and i must admit it was a sort of a voyage of discovery for me was the extent of the the fan fiction the fan fic that has um developed from sherlock holmes now I, I suspect this was just outside the the kind of range of the Conan Doyle estate. They couldn't do anything about it. And, of course, it helped them enormously. I mean, you know, the fact that there were these fans out there writing their own stories, not necessarily even published, but appearing on the internet, sort of developing particular kind of relationships, looking at the sort of possible gay relationship between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and sort of making that into uh, elements of stories, you know, the, it just flourished uh, in a way that I don't think I've seen elsewhere. I think it might be the case in, in Harry Potter, for example. It doesn't exist in the James Bond world. And that possibly is because the um, copyright holders there, um, they're a bit more sort of hands-on um, not to say that the Conan Doyle estate hasn't been, but they've sort of channeled their fire on, into particular areas. And uh, fanfic has been allowed to flourish. Of course, it has existed from the year dot. I mean, people were writing spoof Sherlock Holmes home stories from the, the 1890s. So, um, you know, there's nothing new about that. But in addition to the importance of the, the image, I think, the, the fanfic is very significant in furthering, you know, everybody's interest in in, in show at home.
0: Well, they sure are, and one wonders what Conan Doyle would have made of all this fanfic. But well, we'll have to hold a sales and ask him. In the meantime, Andrew Lyssett, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.